You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. If I had the money, I'd be opening this episode with the first 20 seconds of ACDC's Back in Black, and then I'd fade that into the regular Monster Talk theme. I, I actually did that, and I liked it. But I really don't want to have to deal with the copyright issues in the show, so that's not actually how I'm going to start the show. So instead, I'm going to ask you to imagine that you're hearing the tick, tick, tick of the drums, and then the roaring open of Back in Black. Can you hear it? Okay, listen. And now, that'll slowly fade out, and you'll start to hear this. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome back to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm your host, Blake Smith, and today we're going to talk to authors Donald Prothero and Daniel Loxton about their long-awaited book, Abominable Science. I feel like I've watched them give birth to this amazing book, and I have to admit that this episode starts out sounding a little bit like a commercial because I'm simply blown away by the amazing work they've done. Also, I want to let you know that I'm working on a new podcast project, which will be produced in tandem with Monster Talk, but will give me the opportunity to talk about some fascinating non-monster topics without stretching the parameters of this show to the breaking point. I already have a couple of episodes of that in the can, so hopefully it'll be available very soon. I'll post updates as they become available. I recently got to attend the amazing meeting, and my family and I did it as sort of a great American road trip, allowing us to hit some of the great landmarks of America, including Meteor Crater, the Grand Canyon, and of course, Folk, Arkansas, the home of the legendary Boggy Creek Monster. 
At the amazing meeting, which was amazing, I hosted a panel about cryptozoology with Don Prothero, Daniel Loxton, and Sharon Hill. It was great to get on stage and talk about these topics I love so much with colleagues I respect so much in front of people with whom I feel such kinship. And I have to say, it's good to be back in front of the mic. I missed you folks. Now, let's get to some Monster Talk. On this episode of Monster Talk, we're talking to paleontologist and author Don Prothero and artist and author Daniel Loxton about their new book, which is called Abominable Science. I guess what I need for listeners who don't have a copy of this book in front of them yet, what is this book about and why do our listeners need it? It's about monsters. Oh, okay. Well, that's very topical. <laughs> yeah, especially on this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, this, the subtitle is Origins of the Yeti, Nessie, and Other Famous Cryptids. Yeah, it, it's an attempt to uh, get to the roots of some of these uh, very high-profile cryptid mysteries. I have hundreds of books on the paranormal and cryptozoological in my collection. And this is easily one of the most beautiful books I own. If, if it's not the most beautiful book on this topic, um, it, as well as being rich in content and well-cited and researched, it's a, it's a work of incredible scholarship and beauty, which is a rare combination. Um, Thank you. So Thank I, you. Uh, in, in all seriousness, I, I just I haven't seen anything like it. It's it's great. Um, it's very heavy too. It is <laughs> in many ways. We, we were I'm, joking at the skeptics booth that it was so heavy you could kill Yeti two ways with the words or hit him with it. That's right. It it, it is it is substantial and the the color prints are fantastic. Uh, it's just it's gorgeous. How did this happen? <laughs> well, we're 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 really fortunate that Columbia University Press went all out on this. Um, I mean, you you think about it. There, there's this there's this idea in publishing. It's been around for decades that uh, people don't want skeptics books. Um, you know, it's it's a very old tale that skeptics have a hard time finding places to publish their research. And here we are with a big, heavy-duty academic publisher, which has produced this gorgeous hardcover with these velvety pages and, and color all the way through it and a dust jacket and everything, all, you know, f- stuff full of art, and all at a, an affordable price of, of just uh, 30 bucks. That, that's really rare for for an academic press, and I got to say, I'm just completely astonished. <laughs> I was not expecting it to look like this, and uh, you know, it's it's all thanks to to Columbia. Wow! Yeah, they used they use very high quality uh, glossy stock, which is why the weight is there. But that's necessary for all the color art that's in it. And I love the cover design, which was something they came up with, which has this uh, appearance of some kind of an old-fashioned uh, 1940s, 1950s type comic book or tabloid uh, yeah, pulp, book, you know, yeah. with a pulp fiction, literally, with a, the fake uh, tattered cover on the front. So It's a beautiful book. Now, the contents, right? The contents are great, too. Uh, it's extremely well-researched, yet extremely readable. Um, so... I, I, I think I've urged uh, my uh, listeners to buy a lot of different books, but if they don't buy this one, they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you would think I your listeners, yeah, your listeners would want to hear it or read yeah. it because they are predisposed to hear about monsters and especially debunking monsters, and we're trying to do that. Yeah. So tell me about um, what monsters are in this book. I mean, I, actually, I know because I've got the book in my hands, but. I, <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, it, it covers the biggies, uh, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, Sea Serpents, a real favorite of mine, uh, the Yeti, the Mokele and Bembe, the sauropod dinosaur alleged to live in Africa. Um, and with, you know, plenty of, of mention of other creatures along the way, but those are our big case studies. So right. how, how did you pick those? 
Well, they're the most famous ones. Oh, and okay. the most awesome. Oh, oh and, and, most and awesome. the longest <laughs> literature, too, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we actually had at one time additional chapters on on uh, Chupacabra and the other lake monsters, which I wrote, and then it got so long, Columbia had to drop them out for now. So uh, it's it's temporarily a shorter book than we intended, and we're hoping maybe <laughs> if there's a second edition, we can put those back in or maybe put those uh, finished chapters on their website or something like that because we, we'd love to have covered more cryptids if we could have. Sure, it's still about twice as long as we contracted for. Yeah, it. that's right. They were pretty, <laughs> pretty tolerant about us going way over length there. So yeah. again, you know, just amazing support from Columbia. Yeah, I, I look forward to seeing this on bookstore bookshelf. I, I think there's been a, a, a history, at least in my research, of uh, or one of my shopping really. When I go to buy stuff uh, at the bookstore on these topics, it's really hard to find well uh, researched material. And, Are you- are you saying that research in the paranormal realm is not always that good? Uh, yeah, I, I, we we do have a phrase. <laughs> call we say a spade here. a spade here. Yes. Uh, yeah, we, I call it the uh, the echo chamber of paranormal literature, yeah. and, and it really is that. But I, I, it's probably not just paranormal literature that has this problem. But boy, does it have the problem? <laughs> it, it, it does. But I mean, in in in. Fairness to the monster literature. I mean, th- this book does rest uh, not just on the skeptical stuff, but on the, you know, and uh, you know, on primary news sources and, and so on. But, but also on some of the better books in the monster literature, like, you know, R- Rupert T. Gould's uh, Loch Ness Monster book is one of the essential uh, sources on that topic. Um, and you know, he he thought there was a monster there. Wow. And that's something else that we tried to do in this book, and especially the part that uh, I contributed to it was, you know, there are lots of individual books on it's on Nessie or on Bigfoot, which are well researched and take a skeptical viewpoint and and come to conclusions very similar to what we did. But what we really wanted to do here was take the entire topic of cryptozoology as a whole and look at it from the the broader perspective. How do you do the type of analysis that's appropriate in this case? Because oftentimes that's not really included or it's just sort of passed by tangentially somewhere in the final chapter of a typical book that's just uh, just analyzing, say, one cryptid like Bigfoot. So we have, as you see, the beginning chapter is more about methods and about how science works and what we can do and not do in science, and especially in the context of this kind of material, what kind of evidence there is in there and how do you rank evidence? Because as we'll, we concluded, it was the, the problem is largely their evidence is based on the worst possible kind, things like personal eyewitness testimony, which is useless to us scientifically, and almost never on stuff that's actually useful to us, like real hard evidence. It's physical remains of these things, and that's a crucial thing that uh, changes the nature of the debate from what cryptozoology are used to. I want to say something about the um, the field of cryptozoology because it's a topic we've covered quite a bit on the show, um, where cryptozoology sort of borders on. Sometimes it seems like it's part of biology, and sometimes it seems like it's nonsense. And some people have categorized it as pseudoscience. Um, and where do you guys come down on that? Uh, or, or do you cover that in the book? We, we yeah. do. There's there's quite a bit in there about the the kind of uh, subculture, uh, as well as the you know what what we think of as a field or a proto field of cryptozoology. It's covered extensively in the last chapter of the book. 
Yeah, so the last um, chapter has a lot of things about it, and and the major thing it follows a train of thought that we inherited from Sharon Hill in lots of ways, which is, you know, they have to pretty much play by the rules of science in a much more rigorous fashion than they have in the past, and and you know get re- really serious if they want to be taken seriously, get serious about excluding bad data, get serious about you know approaching things uh, the scientific way, so that when something is unknown, it's not necessarily evidence of their creature, it's just evidence of the unknown, which is the one of their biggest problems to jump to conclusions without any evidence. I was just going to agree that the the, the bad apple in the data set, the, you know, that that uh, issue is that's really a key one. Um, has there ever been anything that cryptozoologists have just plain given up on? <laughs> Good I mean, question. like anything, anything ever. Somebody um, sooner or later recycles it again. Yes. Yeah, uh, and that, and that's that's a problem. You know, your your uh, your scholarship is not. Progressing, if you're not <laughs> able to even sort the wheat from the chaff. You know? I am not joking when I say this. I literally, an hour ago before we started this interview, I was listening to a radio show, and uh, there was someone on the radio, uh, essentially supporting the idea that perhaps the Cuttingly fairies were real. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's only only from familiar from our literature anymore. Just an example yeah. of something that's been debunked over and over. And now yeah. they're they're going to revive well, that. Yes, the girls admitted four of the five photos were fake, but the fifth one they always said was real. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, this is this is like the great lesson of the skeptical literature is that nothing ever ever goes away. It's just you know, it's a wheel. It just you know, sometimes these these legends will kind of pass out of the limelight for a while, but they eventually they just rotate back up into the onto the public stage and skeptics have a hard time keeping track of these things you know if it's not current it's not in the news cycle people get bored and and uh, you know with turnover in the the ranks of of uh, skeptical researchers these things get forgotten the old literature gets forgotten yeah it's it's a lot like whack-a-mole yeah <laughs> and a lot of, a lot of this book uh Involves this kind of archaeology of our own field of digging back into into uh, insights of previous investigators that have been until now scattered across this this large literature, much of it out of print and, and not, never digitized and forgotten. You know? Well, well, there there's a great uh, lead into this next question I have. Okay, is, well, uh, what did you learn researching the book that you think will come as a surprise to readers, uh, even though they may already be familiar with a lot of these topics? Uh, <laughs> uh, quite a quite a few things. Uh, it, you know, it surprises me that it's possible to make discoveries in this field. You know, there have been people talking about monsters for a long time, especially these famous ones. Like, you know, I'm, I'm sure your bookshelves look like mine, just shelf after shelf of the Loch Ness monster alone. And, you know, <laughs> and, and, and uh, has a giant literature by himself. Yeah, yeah. And so, how can there be anything new? in that field and yet it turns out that there's a lot of kind of basic work that's never been done and um, we were able by putting things kind of back into their historical uh, order you know by dismantling this this fictive history that grows up around legendary monsters and putting it back in the actual order that things come into the historical record some some insights jump out um, one in the Mokele and Bembe chapter it's pretty clear that the Mokele and Bembe uh, idea was born immediately, immediately after the first mountings of sauropod dinosaur skeletons in, in the world's museums. Yep. And <laughs> that's surely relevant, <laughs> but it's never really been discussed before in the literature, which is, is, is somewhat amazing to me. 
And the, um, and the irony of that story, sorry to interrupt, but the irony no, of that story is that what we've learned about sauropods now is that those old mounts from a century ago were grossly wrong. And they kept <laughs> their tails up in the air and didn't drag them, and they never lived in swamps, and all those other myths that have accumulated about giant sauropod dinosaurs, like things that used to be called brontosaurus. And yet that is exactly what informs the legend of Mokilabambembes, a century-old false notion of these animals, which tells you that it's cultural, not biological. Yeah. Um, on, on the topic of Bigfoot, I mean, surely the, the most explored uh, cryptozoological topic there is. Um, I was surprised doing my research for, the, for my original junior skeptic story. I did a two-part uh, story for the kids section of Skeptic Magazine, which is my main gig um, on Bigfoot. And I was surprised to learn in there that the, the really key story in the, in the Bigfoot literature, uh, this, this sighting by this guy named William Rowe, which was probably the uh, the basis for the for the uh, if it was a hoax for the creature that we see in the in the uh, infamous Patterson Gimlin film. Well, because they're so similar, the William Rowe story is is really the most important story in in the Bigfoot literature. But I was really surprised to find out that nobody ever <laughs> nobody ever talked to this guy. Nobody in all of cryptozoology ever looked him in the eye even once. And nobody was mentioning that. Nobody seemed to know that. Nobody seemed to care. And nobody had bothered to dig down and look at the roots of the story. There were no interviews with him uh, subsequent to his story appearing. No, uh, it's it's funny. There's there's apparently in history there were two versions of his story. One that appeared in the press at some point, which seems to be lost to history. I haven't been able to discover it. Nobody else has it. Um, and the story that he told John Green by letter. And uh, then he died, and nobody, <laughs> nobody spoke to him. Um, now, it's nobody, it's, you know, it's not the fault of Bigfooters that William Rowe died early. Uh, you know, that's that's just kind of a, an accident of, of history. But but it is really important that nobody looked him in the eye, and nobody in the literature is talking about that. Uh, that's very surprising to me. And there's there's a lot of this stuff that is, you know, in one after another in these mysteries, we just kept finding that. Yeah, the yeah, kind tell, of fundamental research at the root of these things had never been done. Tell them about the uh, King Kong connection on Nessie. Well, this this is one that had been uh, had been explored somewhat in the literature, but but never in depth. Um, uh, Rupert T. Gould uh, he discovered uh, very on the, the George George Spicer sighting, uh, the most important Loch Ness monster uh, sighting, the one that gives it its long long neck. The, you know that that transformed it into a kind of a plesiosaur like like cryptid. Mm-hmm. Um, Spicer had just seen King Kong, <laughs> and there is a scene in the movie which is very very similar to his sighting. Well, uh, Gould noticed the similarity and he asked him about it, um, and uh, uh, and then it just sort of dropped out of sight. You know, for for eighty years, nobody really talked about it. Um, it. Now, it's not unknown. Adrian Schein, for example, a very responsible researcher, uh, and great bearded uh, uh, Englishman. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure he's an Englishman. He is oh, very uh, well bearded. He is a, he's a great bearded citizen of cryptozoology. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I can never quite keep track of all those different uh, ways of dividing up the UK. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so, so I'll just back that yeah, out and say, yeah, and yeah. a man with an astonishing beard. 
he does have an astonishing beard. There's just no getting around that. Well, I mean, he he has has mentioned in in uh, in past that he thinks the Loch Ness monster grew out of King Kong. But as far as I know, he's never developed that idea uh, in detail. It's just something that's sort of quietly known in the background, but never explored. Well, our book explores it in, in detail and, and does a you know a direct visual comparison between the. Uh, the Spicer sighting sketch and the, the frame, these frames from King Kong that that uh, quite clearly uh, seem to have inspired the Loch Ness monster, and that and that leads to another point, which is quite interesting. And you see this on a number of the cryptids: is that their their literature is really a sort of a boom and bust cycle that reflects usually one sighting getting a lot of publicity and then a lot of copycats. And then it dies off for a while, and then there's another sighting, and a lot of publicity, and a lot of copycats, and then it dies off for a while, which is a highly cultural pattern, but definitely not a biologically one. Yeah, absolutely. uh, Certainly Nessie shows that, where it goes through boom and bust cycles of popularity, usually right after a very highly publicized sighting. And then it's forgotten for a while, and then another sighting, and then it's all back in the literature again. But nothing to do with the the biology of animals. And, of course, the Chupacabra story, which unfortunately we we could not include in this book, is classic because Chupacabra had no existence whatsoever until it was found uh, supposedly by a woman in, in Puerto Rico who had just seen the movie Species, which has a creature very much like the Chupacabra in it. And apparently she didn't quite distinguish fact from fiction. Then it spread all over Puerto Rico. And then, of course, was unknown outside that island until it was on the Christina show. And she said it was like the Oprah of the Latino world at the time. And then all of a sudden, Chupacabra was in every Latin American country in the world. Uh, suddenly, uh, you know, remarkably just managed to appear across an entire continent, which tells you it's a cultural out-effect and not a biological one at all. And it also seems to respect the U.S. border. It only gets as far as t- Texas, but never much further. As soon as the Latino influence disappears, Chupacabra does too. The, you know, with Ben as the co-host, he's, uh, his book, uh, has been well covered here, but the, uh, the, the, the transformative nature of the Chupacabra uh, you know, it, it parallels uh, folklore, and it, it is folklore. Yep. But it's interesting to me how that the media uh, has uh, sort of transformed hairless dogs, hairless canids, into a new chupacabra. So, like yep. that was never part of the folklore. But as soon as people started seeing strange animals um, that they couldn't identify, those have become the new chupacabra. So right. now. I- I would suspect most people would not recognize the Tolentino right. version of the Chupacabra because right. of all the media coverage of the hairless dogs. It's so bizarre. <laughs> and that's yeah. very cultural, yep. Yeah. Yeah, it becomes a culturally available template that you can plug new new uh, phenomena into. Well, how much do you think Bigfoot suffers the same sort of fate? Because all the native uh, hairy uh, swamp monster uh, boogers and whatnots all across the country are getting kind of shoehorned into Bigfoot by uh, cryptozoology enthusiasts. But like the three-toed swamp monster, that that doesn't really bear that much resemblance to a Bigfoot. It, it bears more resemblance than like uh, stone-skinned uh, creatures, cannibals that can shoot lightning out of their fingers, uh, <laughs> which which also gets bulldozed into the the Bigfoot uh, 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 the little tiny Bigfoot box, the canonical yeah. Bigfoot of, of modern yeah. monsterology. Uh, this this is a real problem, you know. You've got so you've got an entire continent, multiple continent, continents of of uh, you know 
various cultures, uh, very different people with very different stories, and all of them just getting appropriated and bulldozed into this tiny little box, which is convenient for for monster uh, monster enthusiasts today. Um, that's that's uh, you know it's it's a problem for the science of of monsters if you hope that there is a signal in the noise somewhere. It's also kind of distasteful misappropriation. And uh, the same occurs to Yeti. The, the Asian continent had a number of different kinds of strange creatures. And as Daniel was telling people at the uh, at TAM meeting, uh, Yeti was originally des- described as being a dark brown creature like the Himalayan brown bear, which probably really was based on. And yet our culture now has Yeti as a snow white creature. And almost all of its cartoon and other you know, stop motion in uh, Rudolph the Reindeer and so on, all those uh, versions of Yeti are now white. <laughs> Yeah. So this is more of a question for Don, but I, I know that um, a lot of people who are uh, amateur naturalists are interested in cryptozoology. <laughs> this seems so radically different from um, how biology works or how it seems to work. Um, so we, uh, what I see a lot of is people trying to lump things into one category, but in biology, I see people looking for physical differences as being evidence for speciation. Uh, so right. um, how, how would it be different if, if, let's say there were extant carcasses of all these different uh, creatures, wouldn't they actually constitute a bunch of different species? When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Now, that would be a genuinely biological way to approach it. And, and of course, a real biologist would have real specimens in front of them. They would have to look at samples of animals from different regions and look very closely at them for fine-scale variation and then ask the question, is it likely there are one species or more than one? And in the modern world, that's done not just with things like pelts or skins or uh, you know other parts of the animal, but even their DNA can be sequenced from a reasonably large enough piece of their biology. So those things are routinely run through all sorts of genetic tests as well where we can really decide are these species different or not. And, of course, that's a giant difference between that and cryptozoology, which is based on legends that have no physical entities yet discovered 
and therefore you can't make any real determination biologically what, if anything, they are alike or not alike. It all depends on how the legends sound in the literature. And that reaches a larger question, something I try to contribute a lot to in this book as a person with a background in both geology and paleontology and also field biology. I've done a lot of field biology in my career. Uh, one of the things that really struck me, both when I was involved in things like taping Monster Quest and, and uh, writing this book, was just how little any of the people who did this stuff had in the way of a notion of what we now know about field biology and field ecology. There really is a very large science now. What is the way you go about investigating things like uh, unknown animals in regions that haven't been studied very well? And there are lots of basic principles of ecology that are well formulated now and give you predictive powers to say this is likely or this is unlikely. And there are you know, ecological constraints and physiological constraints, all sorts of which things like that. And then in addition to that, you have geological factors, like in the case of all the lake monsters that live in places that were under ice only uh, 12,000 years ago. So uh, all that was something we really wanted to bring into this book, this larger scale. Uh, the basic rules of modern biology and geology have got to go into this picture. And we're virtually, in a, in, you know, they were occasionally mentioned casually in some of the books. But we felt that it's important to put that framework up front right at the beginning and point to it again and again, because this is really the constraining variables. This is something that it seldom bothers the cryptozoologists thinking about biological constraints or geological constraints that simply make certain things impossible. Can I can I go back to yeah, your absolutely. question, Blake? Um, yeah. Uh, well, okay. So you know, in in biology, in ta taxonomy, you have your, your you know your lumpers and your splitters, right? The people right. who um, that's on either either side of that is very uncomfortable for for cryptozoologists. Um, you know, the, the kind of basic engine of cryptozoology are sighting reports. Um, but the problem is that witnesses do not agree at all. You know, there, there are not only regional variations, but there, there are, you know, just no end of, of imaginative variations <laughs> of creatures that, that people report, right? So, so Bigfoot can be 20 feet tall. It can have glowing red eyes. It can be bulletproof. It can be this pattern. It can be that pattern. It can have six toes. It can have three toes, right? Now, if you bulldoze all those into a single kind of a species or a very small number, uh, it doesn't work <laughs> because they don't match. But if you start splitting them, that also doesn't work because you end up very quickly with, you know, 50 or 60 different giant ape species stomping around the world undetected. No, <laughs> either way, it's a problem, you know. Yeah, and that goes right uh, back to our biological principles as an ecologist myself. Uh, we know how big a home range for an animal size of Bigfoot has to be from basic biological constraints, and they, that doesn't fit that description at all. We know a lot about the kind of population densities they should have and how often they should be found as bones. All those things are relatively well known in the biological world, and yet none of these things are met by the, the sightings of Bigfoot, and which is all the more reason not to take them as seriously as they do. So do any of the monsters that you cover get kind of a real case-closed kind of a treatment? The Lockers monster is a bit, it's a bit of a door slam, I think. Um, yeah. uh, the Mokalium Bembe as well. Yep. Uh, both, sea, both. Uh, sea serpents are, uh, that's, that's a, the chapter is much more open-ended and, and, you know, the habitat is just much more, Right. It's a more plausible creature on the face of it. There, yeah, there but, are deep water worlds we don't know about, especially uh, with deep water organisms. But that the different story altogether from thing like Loch Ness. So. 
yeah, yeah. They, uh, you know, they, there will be novelties to come out of the ocean yet. We don't know what those will be. Uh, we we um, know. I saw the documentary Pacific Rim, so I have a pretty good idea what's coming. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> now remember, that's called science fiction, Blake. Yeah, yeah. You say what you want. I, I'm working on my my uh, my Jaeger right now. <laughs> um, but you know, even even with the sea serpent. Uh, you know, the, the kind of poetry of the sea serpent really speaks to me. My, my parents were sea serpent witnesses, and that has really been a big influence on me and my career through my life. But, but you know, the chapter makes quite a strong, quite a strong argument for the cultural evolution of sea serpents. Again, you know, a cultural pattern rather than a biological pattern. Um, I, I don't, we're not able to slam the door on sea serpents in the same way that we can on Loch Ness Monster, but I don't, I can't give. I can't give people that much uh, comfort on on the topic either. Well, I mean, I you know, I just don't go in the water. It's not safe. That's fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the sea actually. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously the mermaids will get you. They they, they will. They're very right. Yeah, Speaking I was amazed. The, the, the great wheel of culture. Mermaids are yeah. back. Yeah, I couldn't believe when those things reemerged on cable TV just a year ago, and and I thought, well, that's one that we won't have to put in the book. It's so dead. Nope, I was wrong. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to watch the sequel yet. Uh, uh, did it spend a lot of? Did you guys see it? Yeah, I saw. Well, parts, I'm, a, I'm about I stand it. I'm about halfway through the sequel right now. I've just been watching it over the last couple of days. Well, the original so dealt so much with the uh, the aquatic ape hypothesis, yeah. and and uh, this one does too. Yes, uh, that's a bummer. And then the woman who hypothesized that just passed away like a week ago. Elaine, Elaine Morgan. Yes. Yeah. Uh, her name was big when I was a graduate student back in the seventies, but it's pretty much laughed at by biologists today. So yeah, I mean, I think the, uh, I mean, anybody, and I don't know, did she spend the rest of her life pushing it, or did she back away? From- yeah, she pretty much wrote a sequel, which was some more or less the same story, re, re uh, restated with a few more stories built in. But I don't see her ever having moved very much far beyond it. That was her claim to fame. It got her on the bestseller list back in the seventies. Why would you abandon that? No, that's so- uh, yeah, I, I can't imagine. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but if you can milk us for the rest of your career, it'll pay your bills. Yeah, well, you you got to pay your mortgage. But I I do have this uh, uh, sort of slavish devotion to the truth. Uh, <laughs> it's inconvenient, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say though, one thing that your book does that I, I haven't seen in print, and I apologize to any authors who may have covered this that I'm not aware of, but you put into print the dark underbelly of cryptozoology, in my opinion, which is that it is infested with creationists who are trying to find monsters to disprove evolution. Yeah, this this is a point that has been much neglected in literature until just recently. I mean, you've, you've been one of the people bringing this uh, to the attention of the public. Our book is another step along that, that road of revelation. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll let uh, I'll let Don speak to the creationists. Yeah, that that's something, of course, that's particularly interesting to me because I battled the creationists for close to forty years now, and and what's striking about that is effectively what's happened now is that the only really active groups you'll see still looking for Michele Mobembe or even the Loch Ness monster are creationist groups, particularly this guy Bill Gibbons, who has no training in science whatsoever. He comes from a theological seminary, but he's a fundamentalist minister, and he's the one who shows up on Monster Quest. And when I was on Monster Quest. I didn't see it until after, of course, it was all put together and who the rest of people were. And I didn't realize when I first viewed it who he was, but that's what he is. He's a fundamentalist minister. All I could tell when I watched the, the airing of the, the episode I was in was that he certainly didn't know anything about biology or field biology because he was doing all sorts of basic blunders and showing he had no concept of what modern field ecologist does. 
And uh, that is now the big problem. That is really the only people who really are actually out there very often, so they end up on TV a lot. And they seem to think, and again, it, it escapes me how Creatius' mind actually works this way, but this is what they claim, that they supposedly are arguing that somehow we discover some animal that was thought to be extinct, and lo and behold, all of evolution will come crumbling down like a giant house of cards, which is patently ridiculous, shows they have no concept of how evolution actually works and how much evidence they would have to overturn in order to change anything. Because, uh, you know, we have all the time find things that are, you know, around a long time after we thought they were extinct. Uh, but that doesn't they're, change very much. They're, 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 they're things are not too different from what's around now. So There are probably dinosaurs in your backyard right this second. Well, that, you know, that's true. Dinosaurs aren't extinct, so we can't make sure that <laughs> talk about that right there. Uh, mm-hmm. And I have one in my uh, the other room right now, which is hopefully not going to make noise or taping, because birds, of course, <laughs> are dinosaurs. And uh, that has been known now goes to 40 years. Uh, but the, the bigger point is that this now ends up becoming almost a part of the entire creationist attempt to undermine science in this country, which is how I view it with great alarm. And I showed in my slide at TAM, one of the last images I showed was this effort in Louisiana schools now to promote, promote Loch Ness Monster. Lo and behold, something we think is a case closed. The Loch Ness Monster to Louisiana school kids in an effort to make it part of their creation agenda, which, uh, again, I don't see how it's going to convince anybody creationism because it doesn't make any sense at all. But that's that's where they're going. I mean, literally, school kids now are being taught cryptozoology to push creationism, and that scares me. It, yeah. Yeah. It bothers me, too, because I enjoy the mysteries of uh, cryptozoology, but I don't like to see this, I think, what can be a fun topic uh, turned into what I think is a harmful anti-science uh, and anti-reality approach yep. uh, to be, mysteries yeah. of the world. Don, Don and I have somewhat differing views, which we discussed in the last chapter, um, uh, you know, about the, the kind of relative uh, potential for harm or potential for uh, for uh, fun and awesomeness uh, that cryptozoology has. I, I have a real fondness for cryptozoology because I come out of monsters and I'm, I'm sure a lot of your a lot of your uh, audience feels the same you know we love these guys we love these monsters we want to talk about them um, so I, I have a you know I have a hard time seeing the 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 danger in, in cryptozoology, and, and maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm underestimating the the uh, the harm that that uh, cryptozoology can do. But I I can't help it. I'm I'm sympathetic to it. I just am. And and I understand that. Of course, there's a big cross border difference in our countries as well. Because in the United yeah, States, forty percent of the population is creationist, and we are fighting desperate battles in many states now to uh, keep creationists from becoming very influential in the science uh, curriculum in many public schools where they don't belong. And uh, even when they don't officially have influence in over public schools in most parts of the country, evolution is just about vanished from the curriculum just because of the p- pressure of uh, the huge number of creationists parents that any typical school class in biology will have and uh, for me who's fought that battle all my life you know every everything that that i see that tends us make us less scientific and more credulous and more common you know common to uh, be sucked into anything that's that's not well supported and not uh, scrutiny uh, bearing crudel scrutiny doesn't help the situation uh, sure the the the, the, the crypto creatures aren't quite as threatening as let's say typical creationism but now they're linked I have a lot more problems with cryptozoology just for that reason, that they are the, the, in my view, sort of like a gateway drug to bad thinking. 
I mean, I, I, you know, against that, I have to, I have to weigh my own personal experience. And again, this is, you know, it's kind of a national or regional issue, somewhat. Uh, British Columbia is a very secular place, um, but uh, you know, cryptozoology for me, it was, it was the gateway drug to the skeptical literature, to, to being a science writer for a living. I, I am in that role in my life because I dig monsters. That's how I started. And, uh, you know, for me, it was just being an inquisitive nerd who dug monsters, dug uh, paranormal mysteries, to being an inquisitive nerd who dug the paranormal. And nothing has changed. I'm just working with better information and digging more deeply now and later in my career. But yeah, and that, that's a good thing for Daniel. But I, I think he's the exception to the rule from what we see. In, well, it's, it's weird because I'm kind of skewed the same way as Daniel on this particular topic. But but I, I don't know. Um, I think we think, you know, we have resources. Um, like my show here, <laughs> and, that's right. Yeah, that, and your book uh, that can help, um, but uh, it certainly is a. Um, it's a. It someone has to learn that there are more in-depth studies and more um, um, helpful resources and methodologies for asking these questions than simply going, isn't that a mystery? And <laughs> let's look at another one. And, <laughs> and wasn't that an interesting, scary story? Yeah, that's my fear. And yeah. I wonder, this this book will be an acid test of this. Uh, when I published my evolution book now six years ago, I thought, okay, I'm going to get uh, bomb threats and hate mail and all sorts of stuff from creationists. And it was silent as you could be. The creationists simply ignored it. And not until it actually appeared in the British popular journal New Scientist did I get anybody noticing that book had been written. They are so insular and so uh, you know vigilant and not ever reading anything that might shatter their point of view that they simply don't know there's any books out there that aren't creationist books. Now, my curiosity will be, and let's just see what happens. We gave uh, Lauren Coleman a copy of this, and we're hoping that well, the other cryptozoologists who are prominent will actually look at it. But I'm curious to see what will happen. Will they actually look at this book and criticize it, even if it, they, if it uh, you know, scares them and they don't like it? Or will they completely ignore it, like happens with my book on evolution, where the creationists made no effort to look at it at all? Um, that's my uh, real interest. Is let's see if we can actually make a dent on at least a few of their consciousness. It would be nice. Uh, uh, to, yeah. to their to their credit, I, I think that cryptozoologists do turn, tend to respond to critics. Uh, but you know, we'll just see how how that engagement plays out. You know? Yeah, that, Daniel. Daniel. <laughs> Daniel put down a really long list of things they have to meet uh, and, and answers they have to provide. And I, my hunch will be that it's so overwhelming that most of them will simply not rise to the challenge at all. You know, they're not that interested in fighting back with any kind of real scientific rigor. Well, I, I run into a lot of people who, who, who I've expressed my Bigfoot doubts to, and they say, well, how do you explain all the sightings? And instead of yeah. trying to answer that question, I usually say, well, how do you explain all the people who see ghosts? Do you believe in ghosts? And a lot of the people who are inter- interested in cryptozoology are not – believers in ghosts i know that sounds odd but there's right. but they aren't or, or a lot of them aren't and and so you know ghosts aren't real but bigfoot might be right and, and it's like well the point <laughs> well, is bigfoot sounds a little more like a biological right animal, right but, but the point is that the the same uh inability of the human mind to understand exactly what it's seeing and make mistakes is is, is true across the board for all these fields yeah, uh-huh. this this is a this is a point that I've made uh, over at Skeptic Blog. Uh, I've I've called this you know this kind of where there's smoke there's fire argument. 
uh, an argument that should never be made again. And for exactly the same reason <laughs> that you just said, Blake, I mean, you can just start making a list, you know, uh, uh, Bigfoot, fairies, UFOs, ghosts, levitating people. You know, you can just start going down the list. You can put hundreds of things on here. And, and in each case, there is this huge body of eyewitness testimony attesting to these things. And yet it's not hard to find, you know, you don't have to go far down the list before any given person will hit something that they just think is baloney. <laughs> and and <laughs> so everyone, stuff, yeah. you know, people don't put it together, but everyone already kind of in their heart knows that the, where there's smoke, there's fire argument is, is nonsense. Yeah. Um, where there's smoke, there's smoke. <laughs> Whether there's fire is something we have to find out. And there's another aspect to this, which is interesting and that's explored extensively in our book, and that is there are different kinds of people who believe in different kinds of paranormal. And what's interesting to see, especially among the crypto community, is that there's cryptozoologists who like to cross the border, shall we say, and go into UFOlogy or something or talk about paranormal things where Bigfoot is a shapeshifter or something like that. And then that, of course, scares the heck out of other members of the crypto community we want to be taken seriously and believe them are real scientists and of course we'll regard ufos as unbelievable but not bigfoot so we have a very strange mix of mix of these things and yet in the general culture mostly you find a lot of people believe in big, big, big bigfoot also believe in ufos it is it's based on their Bader survey yes on the i feel for cryptozoologists on this point um on the one hand they you know Again, the engine of cryptozoology are eyewitness accounts. They want to be true to the accounts. They want to, you know, to to collect and systematize and share the evidence that comes out of the, the accumulation of accounts. But a lot of the accounts have crazy stuff in them, you know, the glowing <laughs> eyes and the you know, the psychic Bigfoot and the Bigfoot that teleports and the Bigfoot that comes out of a UFO, right? <laughs> and and uh, either you know, they're, they're damned if they do or, or they're damned if they don't. Either they just pretend that stuff away, which is what a lot of cryptozoologists actually do, or they face it, in which case they're kooks. And either way, they're not able to make a, you know, to make a very credible case uh, in, the, in the court of public opinion. Either way, guys like me and Don and you, Blake, are going to criticize them. So I do feel for them, but, I, you know, it's, it's not my problem to fix. True. That's their problem. Yeah, mine, not mine either. <laughs> well, I do. I do. I, I've been seeing a lot of. Um, uh, I don't want to say pressure, but I see uh, dismissive attitudes um, from prominent uh, people in the skeptical community about the this kind of research or this kind of work. And while I look at your book and see this incredible work of beauty and scholarship. Um, they might see it as a waste of time. What do you say to people who say that uh, we shouldn't be worrying about Bigfoot? Let <laughs> um, me take that. Sure, you can. You take a swing at it, Don. Sure. Um, I mean, uh, there are some people whose primary interest in the skeptical community are do things that have to do with social justice and things like feminism and uh, LGBT issues and so on. And those are all good and fine their own. But you know. The, the, the entire field of paranormal and especially cryptozoology has been a major aspect of skepticism since its early days. I would say you would agree with me on that one, Daniel, that we've, uh, we've always had to deal with this and it's been part of what a lot of people have to talk about. And it rarely gets the kind of attention that almost any one of these other issues do. And yet it does have potential for a lot of scholarship, as I think our book shows. And it is important in understanding why people believe weird things. 
And in, as I said, and I argue also, it's important understanding you know things like connection in cryptozoology and creationism because it had, does have serious societal impacts. So it's not as trivial as just a hobby. It really does have uh, importance in lots of ways. Well, I you know I, I brought this up on stage uh, at the amazing meeting, uh, but about twenty percent of the population thinks that there is a Bigfoot. Uh, and you know most of those are not hardcore believers there's only about 2 or 3% who who are sure but you're still talking about millions of people who are sure that there's a bigfoot and tens of millions of people who are pretty sure now surely that is worth some kind of scholarly attention from somebody yeah. and yet things well, the like two bigfoot it's a millions yes <laughs> yeah. uh, you know a few kind of specialist critics is not too big an investment for mankind to make when you've got tens of millions of people on the other side. Uh, you know, I think topics like this are worth studying. I think it's useful. Um, if you don't, I ask, what is the point in studying anything? You know, what is the threshold that something has to meet in order to be useful enough to, to deserve some kind of scholarship? I think clearly monsters uh, meet that threshold, whatever it is. And, and I have to, uh, you know, going to you know, social justice and these kinds of things. Uh, talking about skepticism in general, I, I, I always come back to the same thought, which is, you know, the, the largeness of your topic, you know, your, the thing that you live for, the, the, the cause that gets you up in the morning, the bigness of that is not diminished by the smallness of mine, you know. <laughs> Which isn't so small when you're talking 10 million people or more, right? <laughs> it's not so small, but even assume that it's just, you know, the, the basket weaving of scholarship. I'm not tearing <laughs> down your field by pursuing mine. Uh, we're not asking them to pursue ours either, so they, they can do with that time whatever they want. So, yeah. Well, that's but, a great uh, response. I, I would also add that, again, I think I've said this on stage, but I, I think that in the world of cryptozoology, you see the entire world of human belief writ small. And the skills that you can learn interacting with people who believe in this topic that you may be somewhat dismissive of um, will carry you far in how you learn to deal with other people outside of these small issues. Yeah, well, it's, it's sort of like dealing with any any other person who believes in paranormal, yeah. but it's not quite as prickly as, let's say, a creationist or a UFO. Theoretically, creationist. right, yeah. It should yeah, not they, be. As they, <laughs> the creationists, literally, their entire world is wrapped around yep. this church belief, and they live in an insular world like that. Uh, there are some Bigfooters maybe who fit that description, but by and large, they have normal lives outside their Bigfoot fans. Exactly, and that's why I've, I think it is a it's a good uh, a proving ground um, if you want to engage people and not just have an armchair experience of uh, right. That's one of the things we found was quite interesting in the last chapter. We do quite a bit on talking about who are these believers, what their life, because there's now a lot of demographic data about what their you know, various categories of their beliefs are and what they believe to religion and whether they're male or female and economic and other status issues. And the larger conclusion of almost all that uh, set of studies is they're boringly normal. They're just about like you and I from you know, the the average American in most respects. So they're not necessarily the less educated or even the better educated. Uh, they're not you know. There's a couple of cases where they are sort of cornered into certain groups of you know certain genders and ages, but but that's not the largest part of it. The largest part is that they're boringly normal, except that they believe in Bigfoot. Yeah. You know, uh, speaking to the demographics and also to having learned things during the course of this research, I was very surprised how the the uh, sex or gender uh, uh, demographics break down. Yeah. Um, 
women are at, at least as likely, and, and by some data, more likely to believe in cryptids than men are. Um, which really surprised me because this is, you know, this is a topic which is famously a guy's topic, you know. Um, but it starts to, the, the further you get into cryptozoology, the more masculine, the more male it gets. Uh, until, you know, when you get to the kind of elite practitioners, the people who are generating content or perhaps doing research uh, in association with cryptozoology, they're almost exclusively men. Not not completely, but but overwhelmingly. Right. Um, <laughs> No, you, you take it, Don. Well, I was going to say that the, one of the curious things we found is there are quite a few descriptions from several different authors of the the, the classic Bigfoot community is largely not just male dominated, but also this sort of you know hunters of a different co- uh, color type of thing, where their their idea of tromping in the woods, to experience nature instead of uh, to hunt a deer or to go camping, it's to find Bigfoot. And so it's like their hobby it gets them out of the house and gets them away from the family for a while, and they commune with nature. But their excuse is to go find Bigfoot, and that really may not be the actual motivation. They may just want to be out in nature, and there there is that sort of that male hunter, you know, female not so hunter type. Uh, of stereotype running in the the way the bigfooters, especially the ones who are active in field uh, type of things, are run. Wow! <laughs> I, I just noticed that uh, if you uh, go to uh, conferences, it, it tends to be a white male thing, and um, there's not nearly yeah, as much overwhelmingly. Pressure. Yeah, it's it the 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 kind of pressures uh, to. Uh, become multicultural, all multigendered, uh, don't seem to be there in the cryptozoology field, um, especially not in Bigfooting. Uh, yeah, I think they're not, they're not under the same pressure as skeptics are that are trying to reach across society and solve social issues. They're just hobbyists yeah. who want to be there. Yeah. And there's nobody telling them, well, you got to have more black Bigfooters. I, I, wish, so. I, I, wish that, <laughs> I, I wish that all the damn things I'm interested in didn't turn out to be white guy things. It's kind of it's, it's sad. It's, <laughs> well, I, it, but I mean <laughs> – a lot of things do work out that way. Like, you know, uh, uh, you know the the skeptic subculture, the atheist subculture, the uh, the geek and gamer subculture, the comic book subculture. Uh, all of these are areas where there's no particular reason to, to think that that men are more drawn to them uh, by nature, um, and yet somehow when you get into you know there's maybe a, a subcultural problem uh, that these things tend to wind out being disproportionately male when you get to get further into them yeah uh, it's a part of a wider conversation which is you know not not new to me it's, it's playing out across the internet right now i guess the important thing is <laughs> if you're looking for a date <laughs> bigfoot conference is probably not the way to go if you're looking for somebody who's not a white guy <laughs> well yeah i mean these guys are so uh Conventional in many ways. Ah, you said conventional at a convention. You see. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> nicely done. Uh, but, uh, uh, cryptozoology enthusiasts, the the kinds that you know that are far enough in to be going to conventions or generating content, they're more they're more likely to be married, for example, than the general yeah. population. Yeah. Very very conventional people, just regular folks who dig monsters, uh, much much like us. Yeah, including the beards in many cases. <laughs> well, I used to have a beard, not anymore. So <laughs> there you go. So well, so one last question, and then I'll let you gentlemen yep. go. Um, what about believers? Why should a cryptozoology enthusiast consider buying your book? Well, it is uh, at, at this point. I think that it counts as 
part of the sort of primary literature in some cases uh, with some of the arguments we've made, and it's certainly a useful collection of the of the. Uh, it's very useful as a piece of dense secondary literature. So I think that is something that if you're a serious student of monsters, I think it's something that you will want to have on your bookshelf, even if it's just for the 50 or 60 pages of endnotes and citations that we include. Um, yeah, it's I the kind of thing where it would be useful to strike out from this book, even if you hate this book. And that's my attitude, too, is that you know if you're a believer... Uh, you should test your belief. You should put it to the hard test and really read and really face evidence that may not give you the answer you want to hear. And if they still believe it afterwards, then more power to them. But uh, you know, if you're you're not willing to, to give your your ideas a, a, a vigorous looking at, uh, you're not playing it by the rules of science, that's for sure. And you're not actually being fair to yourself. Well said. Well said. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for uh, thank you the, all this hard work. Oh my gosh, I know. Yeah, I've, four I've years in the making, literally. I know. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I feel like I've been uh, a, a witness to the whole development. I know that even that's not true, but um. well, but you witnessed two <laughs> stages of it because we did this twice before. Yeah. Uh, Monster Talk, and then last year we had no opportunity, but now we're here. Yeah, and it's it's fantastic. It the the long wait is over. I it's just yeah, out it's right so now. pretty. It <laughs> thank you. I, yeah, okay, I, would, I just got to say. It is available right now at skeptic.com, at amazon.com. The Kindle right. edition is out. The iTunes bookstore edition is out. The Kobo right. edition is out. It's out in stores. Yeah, a- they said August 6th, but it actually appeared about two weeks earlier officially on, on Amazon, which is when the floodgates burst. So, better. Excellent. Well, uh, gentlemen, I, 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 I couldn't be prouder. I mean, that's uh, it, it is just a wonderful thing. Monster Dog. You've been listening to an interview with authors Donald Prothrow and Daniel Loxton about their new book, Abominable Science. You can buy the new book in many places, but I would urge you to consider buying directly from Skeptic.com because a portion of the sale will support Skeptic Magazine, the folks who host Monster Talk. Monster Talk is produced with the assistance of Skeptic Magazine, but the views expressed here are those of myself and my guests and not necessarily that of the Skeptic Society or Skeptic Magazine. And while you're shopping for reading material, I'd urge you to pick up a copy of Karen Stolzno's newest book, Haunting America, which is available for the Kindle and includes details on several famous ghostly locations in the U.S. with surprising facts about the legends. Haunting America is available through Amazon.com. Thanks to everyone for their support and understanding during the show's hiatus. I do the show because I love it and the subject matter And your support on social media, email, and in person has been wonderful and heartfelt, and I really appreciate it. Thanks to those who've contributed to our transcript project during the break. Big thanks especially to Robert Smith, Johnny Budd, Brian Cassidy, and D.R. Crane for their generous contributions. I still feel a little bit like I'm shaking off cobwebs here, but we'll get things running smoothly very quickly. For Monster Talk, I'm Blake Smith, and thank you for listening.
to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. A lot of people who are uh, amateur naturalists are interested in cryptozoology. 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 <laughs> that was weird. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.